My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. My name is Kurt Frankum. Again, with the opportunity to sit down with a phenomenal professional, uh, Latter-day Saint, uh, so many so many titles here. And today, we're ch- chatting with uh, Jeff Harbach. How are you, hey, Jeff? Hey, Kurt. Great to be back with you. Yeah, this is fun. We've, uh, you know, I call it my day job podcast. Leading Saints is where I typically get to interview people. And we connected about a year ago and talked about your time as a bishop. And so, uh, this uh, we've had a we've had a, a, a dry run, I guess, of of uh, how to yeah, interview. Was, was so a, let's see how this fun. goes. A lot of fun to do it again. And, you know, Davis Smith is a common friend and someone who's connected us again on this. And I'm I'm, I'm happy to be back. Yeah. And you mentioned you're, uh, you serve on the board of, of the Latter-day Saint MBA Society. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. So when they started the LDS MBA Society, uh, Davis Smith and, and the, the other guys invited me to join the board. And so we've had a couple of board meetings and uh, we're just all really passionate about uh, helping members to pursue MBAs and what those that may not think that they have that on their radar to, to kind of open their mind to what that might look like. So uh, I was passionate about the individuals and passionate about the uh, the mission of kind of what they were trying to accomplish. And so, yeah, I've, I uh, joined the board when they asked and they're, they just know they can call on me anytime they they need some help. I'm, I'm happy to help. Yeah. Like uh, if we need an interview, right? And here exactly. you are. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, I definitely want to get into sort of your journey and uh, faith development and whatnot. But uh, if, when you, people ask you what you do for work, uh, what do you tell them? So, this is, you know, I think this is interesting. I ask my my wife to explain this and she's gotten better at it over the years, but it is not kind of the straightforward answer. So I am the CEO of Coffin Fellows. Coffin Fellows is a behavior leadership platform for venture capital investors. And what we do is we have a, a kind of the core of our, our organization is a two-year program where we bring individuals that are investors in to do this kind of this fellowship, which is uh, we meet about once a quarter for a couple of days. And we have these really intense and open and authentic conversations about how to become the best version of yourself so that you can be the best investor that you possibly can be to the entrepreneurs you serve. And so we do that. And it's, and it's really this platform that I get to spend this time with these amazing, amazing uh, innovation leaders and investors that are all from all different parts of the world and just really striving to help their own ecosystems and invest in great companies. And our job is to help them become really the best version of themselves. So it's, it's just so much fun. Uh, and then it's really a lifelong membership into Coffin Fellows. So I run both the program and the, and the, uh, the network. I'm, I'm the CEO, so I, I kind of handle both and empower a team to really support uh, all of our fellows. It's, it's just an incredible, incredible job. Yeah. So, I mean, in the simplest terms, are you, is your organization somehow of a, of a coach or a consultant for those who are, are striving to help, you know, 
thought leaders and business ideas to grow? Yeah, I, I would definitely prefer the word coach rather than consultant. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a recovering <laughs> MBA. And so the word consultant has a little bit of, uh, you know, context there that I'm, I'm not as big of a fan of. But uh, yes, we're, you know, we hope to be coaches and mentors for these individuals when they're going through their big inflection points in life, when they're thinking through how they um, you know, they, they think about any particular investments or growing their firm or just kind of mapping out their career journey uh, in venture and in, in investing. Our job is to be the most important person for them. So that coach that helps them think through those those different inflection points. Yeah. Awesome. So was there a point like growing up or maybe in your young professional life where you knew exactly what you wanted to do or, you know, that you wanted a professional business career? Path? Yeah. And it wasn't this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all growing up, I, I was convinced I was going to be a professional tennis player. Like that, that was the path for oh, me. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I was super focused on it and that that's what I was going to do. I went to, you know, I, I went to school on a tennis scholarship and I was, you know, played tennis all through juniors and, and I achieved some, um, some, some decent success and was, was ranked. And, and that was, that was the path for me. So I wasn't, uh, no, I would, I'd never thought that I would be a, a coach of innovation leaders, helping them to be, you know, kind of great versions of themselves and helping them work through behavioral fitness. That's not something I envisioned. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you, you didn't grow up as a member of the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, and, uh, obviously you got a you were on a tennis scholarship to go to BYU. So was, uh, why, why'd you pick BYU? Were there other options or why BYU? Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to receive some scholarship offers from, you know, as a recruited athlete in high school, you can take up to five paid recruiting trips. <laughs> At least that's what it was the very many years ago that I was being recruited. I don't know if <laughs> I, I assume it's the same today. Um, but so we were able to take five paid recruiting trips and I took my recruiting trips to uh, Texas Christian University, TCU, uh, to Wisconsin, to New Mexico, to uh, BYU and to Utah. And, uh, you know, they were all great schools. I really enjoyed each of them, but there was, there was something very different about, uh, BYU, Brigham Young University. And clearly as coming in as not a member, someone that was, wasn't a member of the church, uh, maybe it was more of a contrast for me to see what was very different about this school compared to the other four that I went, that I went on recruiting trips to. But, uh, you know, I loved the, the focus of the, uh, of the university, I loved the athletic program. I mean, at this time, they had just signed the Nike deal and they were really focused on taking all of their athletic programs into the top 25, which, as you see on the, the current, well, it used to be the Sears Cup. Now it's, um, can't think of what the name is now, but basically ranks overall athletic programs were always, BYU is always ranked very highly in that. And I just, I loved the idea that I could focus very much on my sports. That was what I believed to be my profession. And then also it was, it was an environment where I could very much focus on schooling, which to be honest, wasn't as important to me at the time, but I knew it was something that I needed to be focused on because I, I, I thought that the idea of making a, a living that would last for me to retire off of sport was unlikely. So I knew I had to, to focus on school as well. And BYU gave me the opportunity to do both. And um, you know, I wasn't really thinking about joining the church when I decided to, to uh, accept the scholarship offer from BYU. But uh, you know, now I look back at that and I say that, that that path was clear. I just didn't realize it yet. Yeah. And, and I often wonder, especially uh, non-Latter-day Saints who attend BYU, you know, especially the, the athletes, do you walk in there sort of with your, with your guard up thinking like, Hey, hey, don't, don't push anything on me. Or were you pretty open-minded about the, 
the doctrine and the, the church uh, aspect? Yeah, of I, it? I think every every individual that attends BYU, and it's not just athletes that go there that aren't members of the church, but the large majority of those that go are uh, are not members. The large majority of the, those that are not members of the church are athletes. Um, I think it's different for everyone. You know, I went in there with. I guess I would say an open mind, but just probably a, a bit of a clueless mind. Like I, I knew a little bit about the church, but I wasn't, I was just really excited. I mean, I was thrilled to go to a place that was so cool and so fun and had so many amazing people. And, you know, let's be honest, so many cute girls. And uh, I, I just was, I, I was, I was open-minded about the entire experience. So no, I definitely didn't go up with, in with my guard up. And, uh, and I hope, I think BYU's done an excellent job in kind of painting a picture to athletes of what this is and what it isn't. And so I, I hope everybody goes in with that same open mind. Yeah. So when, when was the moment when uh, maybe the conversion process started? Uh, conversion process to the church, you know, I guess it started, well, gosh, I guess it started even before I went to BYU in, in that I had some good friends that introduced me to uh, to the church. And, you know, I would go to a church with them a handful of times. And and I remember going to a priesthood uh, leadership meeting. No, sorry, just a general priesthood meeting with them. And uh, but didn't think much of it. Then, you know, as a as a freshman on campus, you, we, you know, we, you attend a, a religion class. And so I took my the, the class that every incoming freshman takes as not a member is you take the intro to Mormonism. It literally was called that. I don't know if oh, it's wow. still called that. Uh, so I took that class and that was with a bunch of other non-member athletes. And that was really interesting. And uh, I was rooming with members of the church. And so it, it was just kind of always line upon line. It was it, it wasn't. Well, there was a big aha moment for me, but leading up to that big aha moment for me, it was just a lot of little things. It was, you know, saying a prayer uh, before we started one of our, our matches or, um, you know, having the, you know, the Tuesday devotionals on campus or, you know, attending church with my friends, mainly just to meet friends and, and meet people. All those those little things added up as to just a a, a really great tapestry of, of the experiences that I had at BYU, which, I, you know, I had just the best experience at BYU. I'm a huge, huge uh, BYU fan. Yeah. And so once uh, it sort of started when your sort of your investigation of, of the church, did it move pretty quick? So it was it was my sophomore year when I was really going to church kind of on my own and with some friends, but different friends than I went to uh, to church with my freshman year. Um, and that was the year where I started to really think like, gosh, there's 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 something here. And I know that I want this for my family at some point. But, you know, in order to have it for my family at some point, I probably ought to have it for myself and probably ought to, you know, feel like I know what's going on here and see if it's really real and, and there's truth here for me. And so I, I do remember uh, specifically being in a fast and testimony meeting on a Sunday and I was there again by myself and there were different people standing up and sharing their testimonies. And I, I decided to stand up and, uh, and share something of my own. And, you know, I didn't share necessarily a testimony because I didn't have one at the time, but I, I stood up and I just expressed to those that were in attendance that I, I was really impressed by everyone that I'd met and everyone that was sharing their testimony. And I wanted them to know how lucky I believe that they are to have the knowledge that they had and the confidence that they had and the belief system that they had, because there's many people in this world that, that didn't have that. And I came from a background that absolutely didn't have that. And so I just kind of shared a couple of those things and I sat down and I had this just overwhelming feeling of whoosh, 
Like that is, that is the Holy Ghost testifying to me of truth. And I wanted to know more about that. So I, um, I decided that, you know, my year or my year and a half of avoiding the, the full-time missionaries was over. And I actually sought them out. And we met in the bottom, I think we let, met in the bottom of the Marb building, which is where they had their, it's like uh-huh. a basement, uh, you know, office that they had. And we met there, you know, kind of in secret. I didn't really tell anybody because I, I wanted this to be really about me and my experience. And I had one of the uh, return missionaries that was uh, on the tennis team. His name was David White. Uh, he came to those, uh, what were then discussions with me. And uh, yeah, it went pretty fast from there. I, I was, you know, I, I took the first discussion and I was convinced. And so I, we, we moved pretty quickly through everything. Yeah. And uh, obviously that's, I imagine that's had an impact on your professional life. I mean, um, which hopefully we'll get into, but uh, I mean, just generally speaking, how, how do you feel like, the gospel, your testimony has maybe had an influence throughout your professional uh, life. I mean, it's impacted every part of my life. It's impacted who I am as a person, which impacts both my professional relationships and my personal relationships. So, you know, I, I took one of my favorite classes at BYU is in the, the uh, business management program. Uh, it was a ethics in business class. And I just loved this professor. And I love the way that he kind of integrated business with faith. And how he made that very seeming, you know, kind of, um, he made it all one in the same. And, you know, he, he talked to us about DNC 121 and how that was kind of his, his idea of the business scripture where, you know, many are called, but few are chosen. And, and I just, I just loved everything about that class. So that was really a, that helped open my eyes to, this is not just, you know, um, kind of relegated to one portion of my life and I'm a different person in every different part of my life. No, this is who I am and who I am is a, a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who believes in God, the eternal father and his son, Jesus Christ and the Holy ghost. And that makes me a better husband, a better father, a better business leader, a better you know individual in all aspects of my life. Yeah. And how did your family respond to it? You know, Kurt, uh, to be very honest, so I'll be vulnerable with you here and I'll say that uh, my family was not excited at the beginning. Uh, both my parents uh, have passed away. They passed away uh, quite a while ago in 2004. So I guess it's been 17 years now. Uh, my mom was more supportive, mainly because she just loved me, but didn't really understand the decision I was making. Uh, my dad wasn't as supportive. Um, he, you know, when I the, the, the aha moment that I spoke of was I was, um, I'd gone through the discussions, you know, fairly quickly. And I decided that I, w- I wanted to be baptized and we made this decision on a Sunday and we scheduled the baptism for the following, uh, the following week. And I went, I went back to my apartment and I told my roommates, and this was the first time that I told them. So they, you know, really didn't know what was going on or didn't know that I was even taking the discussions. So I told them and I decided, you know what, I need to write an email to my dad and tell him. And so I did, I sat down, I wrote an email and, you know, this was, again, this is 1999. So the email is not (laughs) what it was uh, today. And I just wrote all these different things. I kind of talked about school and talked about tennis and all these things because I was nervous. And at the end, I just wrote him this, you know, kind of the, I ended the email saying, dad, you know, I wanted you to know that I've decided, I made the decision to join the church and to be baptized. And I hope you'll support me. I believe that this makes me a, you know, better individual and helps, you know, add upon the things. It doesn't change who I am, but just uh, gives me more knowledge and more faith and more hope and helps me be a better person. I hope you'll support me. And I clicked send. 
And I was super nervous after sending this email. I was just, gosh, it was my, my heart was heavy. And, and, uh, you know, I was, I, I was just really nervous. So I went to bed, I woke up the next morning and I went to check my email. And sure enough, there was an email response from my dad and he kind of responded in line to every one of the things that I said in the email. And, and then that, that last line where I told him I decided to, to be baptized, he said, I don't support you. I, I think that's a bad decision that you're making. And, um, I, you know, essentially good luck. I don't support you. I was just, and my just kind of sat there reading that and my heart just sank. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, my dad is someone that I traveled to tennis tournaments with all throughout my, my junior career. I mean, we'd been to multiple different States, uh, a couple different countries. Like we, we traveled a ton together and he was very, very close to me, um, and very important to me. And so I, you know, I sat there for a moment. I just thought to myself, gosh, you know, maybe, maybe I don't need to, you know, make this hasty decision quite yet. Maybe I need to, let me just, maybe I should push pause on this for a second, go home, talk to him, let him know that, you know, more about the church, more about the experiences that I've been having. And, and, you know, all these thoughts started to fill my mind of not that I was making the wrong decision, but rather maybe I don't need to do this so quickly. Maybe I should bring my, my father and my family along with me. And within five minutes of me opening this email, we got a, a phone call and the phone rang and uh, my roommate went to answer and he came in and he, he said, Hey, it's an elder stole for you. And I said, elder stole. And uh, this is, this is my best friend who came to BYU with me. His name's Matt stole. Uh, he lives in Salt Lake. Now he's a dentist and he's an awesome human being and father and husband. Uh, he, we went to BYU together. He, we were doubles partners growing up in junior tennis and he was serving his mission in Hamburg, Germany. And so I said, elder stole. So I answered the phone. I was like, hello. And he goes, he goes, Hey, Harbs, which was my nickname back then. I said, Oh my gosh, like donut, which was his nickname back then. And, uh, he said, yeah, he said, Hey, how you doing? I was like, what are you doing? I mean, this, this was like the middle of June. And, um, and he said, well, you know, after we kind of got through the pleasantries, he said, uh, he said, you know, I, I woke up this morning and I just had this distinct impression that I needed to call you today. So I, I went to my mission president and I asked him for special permission to call you because I just felt like I needed to talk to you. He goes, what's going on? And I just went, oh, my gosh. And so I, I, uh, I told him the whole story. We kind of uh, we were just amazed at the way that the, uh, the Holy Ghost works all at that same time. And, you know, when I tell the story, even today, the hairs kind of stand up on my, on my arm. It's, it was just a amazing experience to me to, to, and that was the aha moment for me to tell me that God knows me, God loves me and that everything is going to be okay. And he, he knows and loves each and every one of us. It's not just me that's unique and special in this. And that was a, that was a huge testimony builder to me. So I, um, I decided that that was all the all the kind of the signs or the the testimony builder that I needed to uh, to move forward with this. I wrote my my dad an email on Wednesday, told him that hey, I, I still love him, I still and I hope he'll be there. And long story short, he ended up attending my baptism. So it was, uh, it was ended up being a great story. That's great. That's great. So when did you realize you were not going to be a, a professional tennis player? So, you know, again, the, the, the summer of my sophomore year, which and that was the, you know, I joined the church right before we left for summer. And uh, then during summer, we, you know, what, what, what tennis players do is we go out and play these uh, satellite tournaments, all with the desire to, to gain ATP points and make it on the, on the tour. And that summer, I had had some of the greatest success that I'd had. I'd really been playing some of the best tennis that I had uh, to this point in my life. I beat a couple of individuals with ATP points and it was, um, I was having success. 
But I also noticed towards the end of the summer that I was losing strength in my right arm and I was losing some pop on my serve. And, you know, I wasn't, I didn't serve the, the, the ball huge. I wasn't one of those you know, big servers, but I could, I could hit it into the 115, 120 range. And I noticed that I was not reaching that when I really reached back and tried to put everything into it. And so I came back that, uh, that fall and, and w- during one of our workouts, I just, my arm just felt really heavy. Kind of like, I don't know if you've ever slept on your arm wrong or kind of, you know, pinned it down and we wake up and it's a little bit numb. Sure. It just, it just yeah. felt like that it just felt really heavy. And so I went into the team doctor and they kind of looked at it and they said, you know what, your arm looks a bit swollen. They think it's maybe some swollen lymph nodes. We got to get you checked out. And so I went over to Utah Valley uh, hospital and got checked out. And we, we went in there with my, at the time, girlfriend, uh, Krista, and we were about, we were going to go on a date after this was after practice. And so she took me over to, uh, to get this ultrasound. And, um, you know, we were kind of cracking jokes. She was saying, you know, it's a boy or a girl and we we're just having fun with this. Didn't think it was anything too, uh, too serious. And the ultrasound tech left and came back in and put me on the phone. And I got on the phone with the doctor and the doctor said, Hey, you know, this is actually pretty serious. We need you get to get you up into intensive care uh, because you have a blood clot in your shoulder that's just a couple inches away from your heart. And if that blood clot moves, it could kill you. You know, and here I am, a you know, a 19-year-old, uh, healthy, 20-year-old, healthy tennis player that was, you know, kind of playing for uh, semi-professional tennis. It's like, could kill me. What? I, I mean, the, the, the thought of mortality had not entered my mind at this point in my life. I was young and healthy and feeling great. And so I, you know, I didn't really know how to process that, but the next thing I knew I was up in intensive care and I had IVs in my arm and kind of going through that whole thing. The main point here being that I had something called thoracic uh, thoracic outlet syndrome, which uh, everybody has a thoracic outlet in their shoulder where all your arteries, nerves, and veins pass through. And that outlet for me had had gotten clamped down and clamped down on my vein, causing it to clot. So the good news was that clot wasn't going anywhere because it was blocked. The bad news was I was that this was something that they weren't likely going to be able to fix. I went through a couple different surgeries down at UCLA to remove um, my top cervical rib and to open up the space and then to try to open up the vein, which ultimately didn't happen. And that was really the end of my my dreams for professional tennis because I knew I wouldn't be able to reach a level uh, that could sustain a professional tennis career at that point after that happened. Yeah, and and that's probably a feeling a lot of uh, professionals can especially entrepreneurs can relate to where maybe you have this big dream and things are progressing and this idea is growing or whether in the business context or elsewhere. And then suddenly something happens and the dream's gone. Like any, anything you learned in those moments, like sitting in that, in that disappointment? Yeah, it's, it's definitely better to, or it's, I guess it's easier to reflect on it looking backwards in the moments yeah. as it is with anybody in the moment that's going through, you know, high levels of disappointment it's hard. It's hard and it's real. It's like, okay, I planned for one thing. Now I need to plan for something completely different or plan for something that I thought was going to be years down the road. Now I need to plan for it now. And um, to your earlier question about how has joining the church or how has my faith helped me in, in all aspects of my life? This was the first, this was one of those first very big things that it helped me with. It helped me gain a, an understanding that my life's journey and my life's purpose wasn't relegated to this one simple thing of being a professional tennis player. Uh, the purpose for me was much bigger and much greater than that and much more holistic than that. And it was up to me to determine or to, to understand what that is, what understand what my true purpose on life in life is. And I still know that tennis is a, was going to be and still to this day is a big part of my life, but it didn't define my life. 
And so that's, that was the realization that I came to is that, you know, all these big things that all these big dreams that we have, and I'm, I'm a big dreamer, a big believer in dreams, like set big goals, set, you know, dream big and pursue those. Um, and you're going to reach some of them and you're going to miss on some of them. And the, the ones that you reach and the ones that you miss, none of those are necessarily going to define you or, or have to define you, but rather it's the, the aggregation of all of your experiences and ultimately all the lives that you impact that's what defines you. And you can do that through tennis, through business, through a nonprofit work, or through any other path that you choose, as long as you choose to be kind of intentional and proactive about that. Yeah. Yeah. Really helpful. So at this point, you know, when you're coming to terms with the fact that professional tennis is not the, is not the future, uh, did that change anything with your direction with schooling or, or were you already on a, a business path? <laughs> yeah, actually I was pre-med. My, all my family were, were doctors oh, wow. and they were all pre-med and that semester, <laughs> again, I feel bad saying this, uh, on, on air, <laughs> but that semester I was, uh, really struggling with a class called organic chemistry. Uh, this, this was just, this was one of those weeder classes and oh my gosh, it was just, it was just ripping me a new one. It was so hard. And, uh, because I had this, this condition and because I was now going to be on blood thinners and I had this blood clots, they actually gave me a pass. Like I was able to, um, you know, in, or, uh, withdraw from my classes without taking class credit. And I was like, wait a second, I can withdraw from organic chemistry and not have that go on my record. I'm in. Let's go. That sounds fantastic. And uh, so I did. And I took that as a kind of a sign for you. Like, you know what? Organic chemistry was hard. And also, I, I realized something about myself that was hard for me to stomach at the time. But it was that I didn't really like being in hospitals. Like I was in the intensive care unit for about a week and a half. And oh, it was just it was just really hard on me. I didn't like being in hospitals, which is kind of hard for me to, to come to grips with, because these are all people that really, really need those medical professionals help. It was just not something that felt great to, to me. So I, I uh, said, you know what, I'm going to switch to business because, you know, all the weeder classes in business are like accounting and economics and finance. And it's like, geez, if, if I get weeded out of that, at least I'll, you know, learn something about maybe how to do, you know, be better at my taxes or be better, <laughs> be, be better yeah, at yeah. something. So I decided at that point, that was the inflection point where I switched to business. Nice. So uh, you haven't used much organic chemistry <laughs> since, used, since then. Proton huh? spectroscopy <laughs> is not something that I use on a daily basis. That's for sure. <laughs> Nice. Awesome. So you graduated from, from uh, Brigham Young University. And then tell me about the time between graduating with your undergrad and then MBA school at the University of Texas. Yeah. So when I graduated in 2002, you know, the 9-11 just happened. The tech bubble just popped. And uh, many people were doing the consulting, uh, you know, routes. And uh, I was, I was not, the, the drug market was not great. And so I was looking for other things to do. And I'd always had kind of an entrepreneurial um, I don't know, desire or passion. I did little things. I ran a, a, a tennis racket stringing business and I, I, I was the director of tennis at the Riverside Country Club for a while. And I just, I liked, I liked doing things and building things on my own and recognizing the, uh, the, you know, kind of the, all the work, hard work that you put in, you get compensated for that hard work kind of directly on a one-to-one -one basis. And so I, I was, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And as I was interviewing and going through this process, my dad called me and said, Hey, you know, I have a friend in Las Vegas, which is where I'm from that, um, had four 7-Eleven stores and she was looking to sell her worst two performing stores to buy a third high volume store. And he thought it might be a great opportunity for me and thought maybe I'd, I'd want to look into buying one of them. <laughs> and I kind of paused for a second. I was like, okay, wait, dad, let me just make sure I hear this straight. 
you want me, you're, you're suggesting that I've done so well in school that you think that I should go pump Slurpees for a living and not only just pump Slurpees at, at a regular store, but pump Slurpees at a really poor performing store. And, and I had to like pause for a second and go, dad, I, I, I did pretty good in school. I, like, I feel, I feel like I should be able to do something, uh, you know, maybe better than this. And he goes, you know, in his kind of infinite wisdom, he said, son, just, you know, trust me on this. And so Krista, my wife and I, we drove down to Vegas and took a look at it. And oh my gosh, my eyes were just opened to once I got kind of over this, this hubris of being this, you know, recently graduated college student with this really shiny diploma that, that made me much smarter than I at least think that I was much smarter than I really was. Uh, I saw the 7-Eleven as an opportunity. I saw it as just this massive opportunity where, yeah, they were losing money uh, for just, you know, bad inventory controls and bad management and all sorts of opportunities that I felt like I could, I could come in and I could fix pretty quickly without even like a deep knowledge of, of business management skills. And so I, I jumped on it. I, uh, you know, I, I, that, that was what happened for me right out of school is I jumped on uh, buying a 7-Eleven. And so I became a franchisee, one of the youngest franchisees in the system and bought a second year store a couple years later, uh, parlayed that into doing a furniture store uh, with, with family and then did a, a, a golf focused interior design firm and uh, did just a whole bunch of entrepreneurial things between graduating college and, and going to, uh, to get my MBA. Yeah. And so was there a moment where you thought, you know, an MBA would really be helpful for me? Yeah, it was a very clear moment for me. It was, you know, I, I was, I was with a, I was the CEO of an organization called the Private Club Network. And we were a network of private country clubs around the country. And we were, our goal was to bring on country clubs so that uh, if you're a member of one country club, you could play all the other clubs in that network. And it still exists today. Uh, at that point, I was a COO and we were looking at selling the, the, the organization to another big kind of aggregator of, of country clubs. And I went into the conversation and had some of these conversations with the potential acquirer and we couldn't, we couldn't get a deal to happen. And I recognized that one of the reasons, or at least I felt at the time that one of the reasons why we couldn't get a deal to happen is because I didn't have a firm enough, a firm enough grasp on the, all the financial levers that were, that needed to be pulled in order to make this a win-win or to articulate to them how this could be a win-win situation for both the acquiring company um, and the uh, being acquired company. So I, I, we didn't make that deal happen. And, and the, the one kind of, as I reflected on that experience, the one commonality that I had with, with, or the one commonality that each of the people in the acquiring company had were MBAs. And they all had this very deep knowledge of finance. And I was like, gosh, dang it. If I would have had a better you know, grip, grip on finance and these concepts, I could have gotten this deal to, to, you know, through, I could have gotten it over the finish line. And so it was, that was one of the main things that, that drove me to say, you know what, I, I'm going to go get my MBA. Uh, it was also kind of my father who now had been passed away for a couple of years, whispering in the back of my mind to continue, always continue your, your education and always to continue learning. And so it was those two things I said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get my MBA and gosh, dang it. I'm not going to, you know, let another great opportunity pass me by like, like that, like it just happened. Yeah. So, and tell me about the process of uh, applying to MBA schools and then how did you end up at University of Texas? Yeah. So I applied to a bunch of different schools. I, I didn't really know a bunch that much about them. We went on trips and I, I visited a bunch of the different campuses and I was excited about a, a couple schools. And uh, I applied to a bunch of them and I, I got into uh, BYU 
uh, or I was accepted to BYU and I was accepted to um, one other school. And then I was not accepted to many of the schools that I would really thought were high on my list, which was disappointing to me. It was, uh, I figured that maybe I just needed to spend some more time on the GMAT and take the GMAT again and really apply again. Uh, and then I was waitlisted at the University of Texas. So again, you know, being very open and vulnerable with you, Kurtz. I mean, these are not things that I shout from the rooftops, but I guess I'm sharing it on air that, you know, I, I was uh, I was accepted to school, two schools, waitlisted uh, to another one, and not accepted to all of my kind of the schools that I really wanted to go to. So I um, I said no to one of the schools that I was accepted to. Um, I asked for a deferral to BYU. And again, I want to emphasize, I love BYU. I'm a huge fan of BYU. And so it was not anything against the MBA program at BYU. In fact, they have an exceptional uh, um, MBA program there. It was more that I just felt like I wanted to get a different experience. I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to have both my undergrad yeah. and graduate degrees come from the same uh, institution. So that was the only reason why I just said, you know, I'm going to defer a year and then I'm going to wait and I'm going to reapply. And uh, I had a really awesome experience where we had we made the decision, like, we're, we're done. We're not going to do it. And uh, then I got this phone call um, from the University of Texas kind of right at the end of, you know, uh, I think this was this was the end of June uh, saying, hey, so sorry, you know, different things have happened. And long story short, we want to offer you a, a position uh, in this next class. And this had happened at a couple other kind of critical inflection points in our in our married life. My my wife was about eight months pregnant at the time, and we were we were convinced we weren't going to be selling our house, and we were going to kind of double down into what we were doing in Las Vegas. And I let her know this that this happened, and we um, we uh, we we decided to make a prayerful decision out of it. So the, the really the, the, um, maybe I'll, I'll dive into one of those inflection points or the, the kind of the decision process that happened for us in, in deciding to, to go to and attend the University of Texas that year. I was serving in a bishopric, um, at that time and I loved the calling and I, I loved what we were doing and I, we, we loved our home and, and we'd already made the decision that, that we were doubling down here. And uh, it was a Tuesday night that, you know, uh, the bishop at the time called me into his office right before we were doing at that time mutual now youth activities. And he just wanted to chat. And this was pretty normal. We we'd, uh, do these kind of chats pretty often. And he called me in and, I, and he closed the door and I could tell he was pretty emotional. And uh, he said, you know, um, he said, Jeff, he said, I, I wanted to let you know that it's come time to, uh, to release you from this calling. You're, you know, and there's, there's something else the Lord has in store for you. And it's, it's not serving in this calling anymore. And I was like, Oof. I did not see that coming. And, and those that have been released from any kind of callings where you're, you know, you have some stewardship, you know, that that's a, it's a heavy thing to feel um, that, that you're released. I mean, some of the, the thoughts that flooded my head were like, gosh, dang it, I didn't do all the things that I wanted to, or I could have done much better, or there's other things that I, I still felt like I needed to do. And so I had all these questions in my mind. And so I, you know, I went home and I told my wife and <laughs> first thing Krista said is, what'd you do wrong? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I don't think I did anything wrong. Uh, and so we were kind of trying to make sense of this. And uh, that's, Wednesday night to Thursday morning, I had a dream that I was going to be a seminary teacher. And I just loved the idea of, of being a seminary teacher. I really wanted to be a seminary teacher because I just love working with the youth. I mean, there's just, there's nothing better than working with these incredible, these incredible youth. And I was super excited about the idea of maybe I would do this. And so 
I thought, okay, oh, maybe this is, this is what it's supposed to be. And uh, so I had this, I was feeling better on Thursday, like, oh, okay, this is what it's, this is my path. And then Friday morning was the morning that I, we got the call from the University of Texas saying, hey, you know, I know you've been waitlisted, but we have a spot for you. Um, would you want to come in and uh, be a part of this next class? So it's like, oh my gosh, I just, you know, my answer is no, but she's like, well, I really think you ought to take the weekend and get back to me on Monday. And it's like, okay, I'll take the weekend, but I'm pretty sure my answer is no. And so I told my wife and, and that uh, weekend we were going to the temple and, and I, we said, all right, we need to really bring our A games to the temple. Like this is, we, we really need to know the Lord's will for us at this time. What, what are we supposed to be doing right now? Because I just, you know, we kind of had the rug pulled out from under us and thinking about what's, what's new and what's next for us. And this is now this opportunity. And uh, so we had a couple really tender and special experiences in the temple uh, one of which, you know, kind of involved a member of our state presidency letting us know, first uh, exploring the idea of me actually becoming a seminary teacher, uh, which was like, wow. Um, but then, you know, with me sharing what we were considering, he said, you know what, I think it's time for you and your family to move to, to Austin. And uh, it was just a really, really deep and meaningful and, and uh, special experience for us that let us know again, reemphasize that the Lord is aware of us. The Lord loves us uh, and loves me and my family. And, and there was one of those tender mercies. I, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in the, the Lord shows us tender mercies throughout our life. And the same thing that happened with my, you know, elder stole calling me at the time that I needed it was the same thing that was happening here. It was tender mercies letting me know that this is the path for, for you to take. And uh, that's why we decided to attend the university of Texas. Wow. Wow. Love that. And, uh, you know, your story is just so, uh, has so many uh, principles and and twists and turns a little bit that uh, I think it really helps a lot of people, hopefully the listening audience, who are trying to make some of these tough decisions, you know, whether to move or what school to go to and those type of things. So, really helpful. You put in your notes here that when you went to MBA school, you wanted to focus on your weaknesses. Is that uh, mainly around the idea that you realize the weaknesses you have trying to put that deal together or, or is there more? Behind yeah, that? exactly. I, I, when I was applying to the MBA programs, I said, I'm going to do this because I want to shore up all the things that I'm not good at. I don't want that, that mm. deal to pass me again. I want to make sure that uh, in the future that I'm able to get that deal over the finish line. And what I pretty quickly realized in, in being in the MBA program is that it, it's a... <clears throat> There's a there's a, a book that's such an old book that I can't remember what it was called anymore, but it was like the the ten biggest mistakes in management. Um, and one of the things that they outlined is that the, the one of the mistakes that the worst managers make is they spend the most amount of time with the worst performing uh, you know team members that they have, and the best managers spend the most amount of time with the best performing team managers that they have. Now there's a whole lot of things to talk about there that we could kind of debate because I'm not sure I completely agree with everything there. But it but it also it made me kind of I listened to that as I was thinking, I don't need to I shouldn't be spending the time trying to bring up my weaknesses or the things that I'm not good at to some sort of mediocre level. Instead, I should focus on what I now know to be my zone of genius or the things that I am good at, that I'm passionate about, that kind of have the, all those intersections of the things that I love to do, that I'm passionate about, and that I actually show a knack for. 
um, I should spend the most amount of my time on that. And so, and, and it was, it was really illustrated to me when I was working my tail off to get like high B's in intro finance again. And now, now in the MBA program and pretty much the rest of the class was like yawning, getting hundreds on every one of the quizzes. I was like, Oh man, this is, this is not finance is not my path. I need to stick with entrepreneurship. So yeah, I learned in the MBA program that I, I shouldn't spending, I shouldn't be spending as much time focusing on trying to make my weaknesses, you know, average or mediocre, but rather take my strengths and make them the best that they can be. There's a, there's a, uh, framework that we use in the Coffin Fellows program called the four zones of human operation, where if you imagine a pyramid similar to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, with the top zone being your zone of genius, the next being your zone of excellence, the next being your zone of competence, and the next being your zone of incompetence. I was essentially spending my time in my zone of incompetence or maybe competence uh, with, with finance. And I needed to be spending my time in my zone of excellence or really my zone of genius. And that's what I learned uh, in the MBA program. As we, we typically do, I, you sent me a, a list of different principles that maybe helped you through uh, your professional life or things that you've reflected upon and helped you. And, and the first one is the strategic plan for life. When I went through the Coffin Fellows program as a fellow first, one of my classmates is a guy named Jack Crawford, and he's the general partner at Impact Venture Capital in Sacramento. He developed this idea or this concept of taking all of the skills that we gain in all these different great educational institutions for undergraduate and our graduate degrees and all these amazing skills that we use in solving strategic um, uh, opportunities for businesses. Why not take those and also apply them to our life? And so he focused on this idea of the strategic plan for life. And I, I worked on it with him a bit because I was just so passionate about it. And this is now, you know, my strategic plan for life applies or really identifies my five core values, the things that are most important to me, and then gives me both, you know, kind of helps me define what that means. So I set kind of this what we call the first, the why, why is it important to me? Then it's a bold move or a bold initiative, you know, kind of some people um, refer to it as a BHAG, you know, the big, hairy, audacious goal, something that's big that mm. you want to do in that area. Then the tiny habits that are going to support that. And then there's also kind of books that I refer to that support those five core values. And so my four, five core values are the five Fs. It's family, faith, fitness, finances, and fun. And so when you talk about <laughs> principles, what my main principle is, is this, it's following these, these five things. I didn't develop this until way after my MBA. So I can't say that this is something that helped me throughout my, my kind of journey through undergraduate work, you know, kind of pre-MBA, MBA, and even post-MBA. This is something that I've really only come to, you know, really embrace over the last 10 years of my life. But, oh my gosh, do I wish I, I would have had this as kind of a framework for myself uh, you know, in, in all those different phases of my life. Yeah. And, and so with these, uh, these five F's that he listed off there, is this something that you've just developed over time or? Yeah. So, so over the last 10 years, I've really kind of honed in on what are the things that are most important to me and what are my gotcha. core values and what am I going to make sure that no matter what I'm focusing on these things. And so number one to me is family. And that, that is, you know, I love the quote that no success outside the home will compensate for failure inside the home. That is, that is very, has very deep meaning to me and to my family. Hmm. And so I tend to think, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm, probably a little bit uh, disillusioned here, but I tend to think that I have one of the most important jobs in the world and one of the best jobs in the world. Uh, and yet with how important that is to me and how important I think it is to, you know, kind of global economies, I still believe that it, it just pales in comparison 
to the work that I do within the walls of my own home, being a good husband, an attentive husband, and a attentive and loving father. And so family is number one for me. And I've set all, all, courts of, all, all kinds of initiatives there. The next is faith. And that's super important to me. That really drives everything that I do. Uh, it, it gives me hope in the, uh, in the areas and faith in the areas where that, that allows me to manage kind of the, the, the highs and lows of our journey through life. Uh, my fitness is super important to me because I want to be healthy. I want to live a long life. Um, it's not that I need to somehow be, you know, some sort of body type. That's not it, but it's rather just it's health and it's setting goals and health to give me the freedom to do the things that I want to do so that, you know, if I want to go skydiving with my grandkids, whenever I, you know, if I'm blessed with grandkids and I'm able to do that, like I, I want to be able to do that. Finances is fourth on the list. And uh, that's, that's really what I do professionally. It's how I, you know, gain an, uh, both an education and, an, and I gain an income through my work. And again, I told you that I believe that my work is really, really important and it's important to me. And yet it's fourth on my list of, of my core values, um, but still super important to me. And what I do there, I, I want to make sure that I'm having an impact. And so the things that I spend my time on, I want to make sure that I feel like I'm having a positive impact on the world when I'm doing them. And then fun, you know, life is way too short to, uh, to not have fun. So I, I, and, and I, I tend, my wife will tell you, I tend to get a little too serious uh, too often. Uh, you know, my, my girls will remind me it's, it's my work face or, or my, my, you know, kind of my on the job face. And I don't want to be that person. I want to, I want to be someone that also has fun throughout life. So these five F's are, I've developed them over the last 10 years and they are critical to me in the way that I try to manage my time and focus uh, where I spend my time. There's a, there's a quote yeah. that, uh, that J Greg McEwen, who's also a member of the church, he wrote a book called essentialism. Um, he said, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And I, I really, I love that. If, if I don't prioritize my life by setting these kind of five foundational core principles for me and, and make sure that I'm spending my time doing them, someone else will, you know, I'll end up being reactive to whatever, what the world uh, throws me. Yeah. And so what, what does this look like in, in, in application? Because it's, you know, we sometimes go through these mental exercises of writing down some words or some priorities and whatnot, but then, you know, Thursday, Thursday afternoon at two, it just, you know, you're, they're so far from your, uh, from your mind that, that you're not really applying them. And so how, how do you get in the routine of applying and making sure that these are your, this is your strategic plan. Yeah, I'm going to give credit to this to Greg McEwen again from Essentialism. So um, he's a he's a good friend, and we've um, he developed this this thing called the time log. I don't think this is anything new, but he presented it to us in living you know kind of this essentialism life and focusing on your core values. And what the time log is is it's every um, half hour of your entire week that you break out and you you show what you did in those half hours. And you do that for three straight weeks. So you're literally taking a time log or a time journal of how you spend your time in every half hour increments for three straight weeks, which is a lot of recording. And so, and, yeah. you know, I have this on multiple different spreadsheets. I've done this multiple different times. I've done it with the youth in our ward and challenged them to do it for themselves as well, because I think it's really powerful. Because as you say, we get, it's very easy to get into the reactive modes of our lives and not, and forget to focus on the things that we've identified as the most important things to us. So we, we take this time log and we measure how we're spending our time over three weeks. And then we look at it and we go, okay, let's bucket those in those different, you know, does this fit in the family bucket? Does this fit in the faith bucket, fitness bucket, hmm. finances bucket, or fun bucket, or not bucket, <laughs> or even some of it, does it fit in the I'm wasting time bucket, which certainly I had in some of my, my half hour blocks. 
And then what you develop is uh, what we call the dream routine. So you say, if I had the most organized kind of best version of my day and my week, what would it look like? And you, you organize that the way, you know, what time you wake up, what, what do you do right when you get out of bed? What are the things in your morning routine? What are your work, uh, your work day uh, priorities and what do you do there? What, what are your after work priorities and how do you spend your time there? And you develop this dream routine. And the reality is you're never going to live up to your exact dream routine every single day. But what this does is it gives you a framework to kind of revert back to to go, okay, this is what ideal looks like for me that allows me to, to meet all my different responsibilities, all my different core values. And I can kind of refer back to that and go, okay, this is, this is what I know good looks like. I need to be extremely disciplined in, in doing this. And I believe that to be, you know, if you're, if, you know, speaking to a room of MBAs, you are, you are desiring, I think for the most part, to be successful in some area of business in your life. And you're likely, if you're an MBA, you're endeavoring to be a leader in some aspect of your life. And as in the church, we're also, we're asked to bring our talents and our, our passions and our, everything that we have to also be leaders in service and leaders in ministering. And I, I think that in order to do that, in order to be, you know, great with your family, great with your, um, your, your work responsibilities and great with your service and ministering responsibilities, you have to be very disciplined. And so that's, th this is what I use. I use this kind of this dream routine that allows me to, to kind of refocus my efforts. And if I get too out of balance, I'll do another time log for three weeks and I'll see how I'm spending my time. And then I'll, I'll again, focus it back on that dream routine. And that dream routine is going to change over time, but that's how I bring myself back to center on how I'm spending my time on the things that matter most. Yeah. Wow. That's really helpful. Next principle you put is there's no growth in comfort zone and there's no comfort in growth zone. Yeah. That's, that's one that, you know, if you ask my, my girls, what's one of our main family mottos, they would repeat that back to you really quickly. And it's, it's just, <laughs> it's true that there's no, it's, it's not comfortable, um, you know, or there's no growth when you're just comfortable when you're in the comfort zone, you really have to challenge yourself. And also when you are challenging yourself, it, it doesn't feel very comfortable. But it's super important to challenge yourself and to develop that kind of that belief and that confidence system that you can do hard things. So that's uh, that's very much a, a, a principle that I live by or that at least I try to challenge myself in is that if I get too comfortable, I know that I'm, I'm being a little bit stagnant, so that I really got to challenge myself. And every time that I have, every time that I've challenged myself to do something new, to grow, to learn, to do something that I wasn't comfortable in, I've recognized that I, you know, I've, I've gained confidence and gained a belief in myself that I can actually do these things. You know, it was not comfortable to um, to go to Norm Nemro's office way back at BYU and say, hey, you know what, actually, I'm not going to take one of those jobs. I think I'm going to go buy a 7-Eleven and, and have him walk me through the, uh, the financials and go, oof, this doesn't look like a very good, a very good business endeavor. It, that, that wasn't comfortable. Uh, you know, it wasn't comfortable to, to do a lot of the different things along my path, but every single one of them kind of added up to these really formative experiences that it helped me be the person that I am today. And the challenge is to make sure that all throughout your life, you know, now I'm a, you know, 40 plus year old, I need to make sure that I still am not, I'm, I don't get, become stagnant, that I'm still challenging myself and making sure that I'm willing to put myself in that growth zone. Yeah. And especially later, you know, as your career progresses, it's easy to just sort of settle in and you found your career or something works so you enjoy and away you go and suddenly you're 60. You oh, know? Gosh. So, uh, but you got to keep re reviewing and staying engaged. You know, I can tell you, I've definitely become more risk averse the older that I've gotten. And I, and I've, I really, I, I don't like that part of myself because I remember like I used to be really <laughs> like I embraced risk. I loved it. And uh, I've become more risk averse. And so this is something that I really have to 
focus on. I, you know, I've got to make sure that I remember that, you know, growth is, is really comes in challenging yourself and, and, and getting out of that comfort zone. So, so yeah, it's really easy for us to yeah. do. And you have to be really uh, purposeful in the way that you organize your time to, to, to focus on being in that growth zone. Yeah. This next principle you sort of referenced earlier with uh, your relationship with your father, but uh, learning never stops. Stay curious. So uh, how do you stay curious? Yeah. You know, I, I guess one of the things I talk about here is that um, everybody experiences this thing called imposter syndrome. You know, there's it's it's rampant in venture capital. It's rampant in entrepreneurship. And it's this idea that you're you're kind of w- working your way through life, just hoping that nobody figures out that you have no idea what you're doing on a day to day basis. Like you're just you're yeah. really just trying to figure it out as you go. And you look around and and like oh my gosh, everybody else just seems to have this completely figured out. Or or you know one of the examples you use is you know as a youth maybe you had the similar experience. I know others have where you're like gosh, when I get to be an adult, like I'm just going to know everything. Like I'm going to know how to do all these things. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm still waiting for that day to come. Like I still don't understand. All all the things that I thought that I was going to understand when I became this quote unquote adult. And so that's this idea of imposter syndrome. And the, and the, the main thing is you're not alone. And so the way that you battle that or the way that you address that is to be willing to be uh, open, to be willing to be humble and to be willing to, to learn, to constantly stay curious and recognize that learning never stops. One of the ways you do this is through getting great mentors. And, you know, you've had guests on your show talk about the importance of mentorship. And I just could not agree more with this. I mean, I, I often tell when I'm talking to young uh, people that are pre-MBA, that are, you know, kind of, you know, this, this decade of decision-making is kind of the years of 16 to 26, where you start to make really big decisions in your life that, that are going to be impactful for you. Things like, how hard am I going to try in school so that I can get into a, a good college? How hard am I going to study for the ACT, SAT so I can get into a good school? Am I going to serve a mission or not? What school am I going to go to? What major am I going to choose? Who, you know, what individuals are, are am I going to date? For some of us, you know, are, am I going to get married and what do I value in a spouse? Um, you know, am I, what work am I going to pursue and profession am I going to pursue? Like there's so many big decisions that happen in this kind of decade of decision-making that, you know, recognizing that uh, mentorship and those that are around you that are mentors can really help you is, is so important. And, and recognizing that, this time, this period of your life, kind of the first third of your life, you know, statistically speaking, we make the most amount of our, our highest earning capacity years or highest earning potential years are the ages of 40 to 55, statistically speaking. So anything prior to 40, which is essentially all the years in that decade of decision making, plus through your MBA and even post MBA is really about learning and growth. So you want to surround yourself with individuals that can challenge you, that can learn, that you can learn from, and that can uh, really be a mentor for you to help you think through all these different paths and all these different things that you're going to, these opportunities that you're going to have put in front of you. Yeah. And that's so helpful because I I remember as, as a young kid, 40 seems so old, you know, and now I'm almost 40 and (laughs) right. And you realize, man, I'm so young and I have so much life to go. And I'm so grateful for these years of, of learning. And it kind of can feel that, oh, the college years are are the learning are the learning phase, but it just keeps going. It's yeah, the, the, the college is the foundational years for teaching you how to learn. Yeah, and then learning just gets better and more rich and more broad and also more definitive uh, as you age. It's 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 awesome. All right, next principle is uh, people tend to overestimate what they can accomplish in a year and underestimate what they can accomplish in a decade. Think in decades. Yeah, I, I love this principle because it's it's true. Like we, it's so easy for us 
to kind of overly stress or overly focus on the moments like, oh my gosh, this, this one decision or this really great thing that happened or this really challenging thing that happened is, is so life-defining for me right now. It's, this, this is going to define the rest of my life. And it's just so big. And, and one of the, you know, again, one of the things I, I'll talk to you know, pre-MBAs about or, or just anyone in general is this, you know, this, the stock market. I mean, looking at the stock market, if you were to take any snapshot of a day or a week or a month or a three-month timeframe, you're going to see all these ups and downs of the stock market. And if you looked at any one of those kind of those down periods or even those up periods, you'd think, oh, gosh, if I focus just on that sliver, it feels so intense and so visceral and so, so important at that time. And so we, we tend to just think that like, gosh, if I just spend a little bit more time at work, I'm going to accomplish so many awesome things right now. And this is, this is going to be really important to me right now. And what we recognize and what I try to point out to them is, you know, if you zoom back out to the stock market over a 10 year time horizon, you know, all those peaks and valleys tend to smooth out and it tends to look like a very kind of smooth and upward trajectory to the right. And that's really what, what I think life can be is, is, as you focus on decades, as you focus on building relationships, as you focus on life term, lifelong learning, then then you don't overemphasize any one particular you know high or low that happens to you in any given year, and you recognize that this is all just part of this journey that we're on. This is all part of learning and growth and character building that is going to benefit you you know ten, fifteen, twenty years down the road. I mean, it it's it sounds so patronizing, but I'm sure you can think of a time where you've told your kids, Hey, believe me, when you get to this age, you're going, you're going to have a different perspective. And it's like every kid that hears that just completely rolls their eyes and goes, Oh my gosh, don't give me another one of those lifelong lesson things. But it just, it just is so true that your, your life becomes this aggregation of all these incredible experiences that you have. And the more time that goes by and the more experiences that you have just adds to this rich database of knowledge and, and, and experiences that you can use to bless the lives of people around you, to bless your, your, your family, to bless your friends, to bless those in your congregations and to bless those in your uh, work environments. So yeah, think in decades, make sure that you don't overemphasize the time that you think or overestimate the, the impact that you think you can have in any given short uh, amount of time, but recognize that you really under, you're likely underestimating the impact and the learning that you can have in, in long periods of time and even in decades. So think in decades. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've noticed that a handful of times in my own professional life where there's these moments where I make a mistake and it's a considerable mistake. And, and in the moment it seems so heavy and it's like, this is going to follow me around for the rest of my life. Or I've disappointed a group of people and that disappointment just feels like now they'll, they'll be disappointed with me forever. And they're going to tell other people to be disappointed with me. But I often remind myself like just how much, like when a decade from my, from now, how little of a blip this will be on on the overall the scope of of my pet of my career and journey and these things and and it really does keep me going at times when it feels like ah this is absolutely heavy. i mean those those heavy things can be so formative for you in such a positive way i mean we know this through the scriptures we know this through the book of mormon that weak things can become strong as we as we embrace them and as we learn from them i was and I was just having a conversation with my daughter about something that was really big and really heavy for her and she was, she was like, gosh, I, I don't, I'm not going to be able to recover from this. Or these people aren't going to trust me after this. Or these, you know, I, I've, 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 no, I've ruined my stature of being trustworthy. And I just had to look at her and, and kind of lovingly tell her like, oh my gosh, 
this actually defines like this is going to build trust, not destroy trust. When you when you own your experiences, when you own your mistakes, when you endeavor to learn from them and, and make those weak things become strong, Ether 1227, when you when you really embrace that, uh, then that's that's how you become even more trustworthy, even more faithful, even more strong in the in your ability to to, to help others and to help yourself. So yeah, all those all those great experiences when they feel so intense at the time, recognize those, those don't like, we don't have to be defined by the worst decisions we've ever made. We can be defined by what we do about them and how we learn and grow from them. And we just become so much stronger, so much tr more trustworthy, so much more faithful as we take them as, as those opportunities. Yeah. Jeff, this has been so awesome and so helpful, inspiring. Um, I know that this is definitely one that people can, jot some notes down or some of these principles and, and apply and, and see a real difference in their, in their life and their professional life and so forth. Um, what, what's got you most excited about, uh, the future of Kaufman and fellow Kaufman and fellows and, and anything that you're really excited about right now? Yeah, I'm super excited about just what the, the role that technology and innovation is, is going to continue to play in our lives and globally. So, I mean, you know, Kaufman fellows, we're, we're supporting in investors that are investing in entrepreneurs that are trying to change the world. And uh, I'm just, I'm really excited about um, humanity and about the goodness of humanity. And that, I don't know, that may sound kind of weird at, at a time where it feels like it's, uh, there's some, been some very tense moments in our, in our country over the last 12, 18, 24 months and, and also around, around the world. And there's been a lot of hardship and a lot of pain and, and a lot of, you know, fear and, and frankly, even a lot of anger. Uh, these things are, it, it, it comes from uh, where we are with technology and innovation is, in some ways, fueling some of those those feelings of of fear and pain and and uh, and what lead to anger. But I'm also just I'm super excited and passionate about the goodness that can come from these exact same tools. And I'm I'm super passionate about entrepreneurs, diverse entrepreneurs that are coming from all um, backgrounds and genders and ethnicities and and geographies and all different stages and, and backgrounds in life that are coming together to build something that makes an, a positive impact on the world. Like that, I still believe that some of our greatest times are ahead of us. Like we are going to solve things like, you know, you know, food and hunger and, and water and, and energy and mobility and healthcare and access to all these things that, that many people still on the planet today don't have the kind of access that they should, even in, you know, in our own country and in countries uh, outside the U.S., I'm just I'm really excited and passionate about entrepreneurs that are trying to solve that that are that are trying to solve access uh, for for all these these, these you know, wonderful people around the world and it's going to come from incredibly diverse entrepreneurs that ha that have experienced those, those types of hardships that are going to build the companies that are going to solve those things in the future. Oh, I, I'm just I'm so passionate about that and so excited about what that future looks like. So if you were in front of a room full of uh, MBA students or alumni or business professionals, what final encouragement would you give to them? You know, I, I would I would harken back to one of my favorite classes in my MBA program, which was um, managing complexity. And it was a it was by a professor named Ruben McDaniels. And he was a very atypical professor. He was a, uh, a, a larger, he's, he's now uh, passed away. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. And it's made, made a big impact on, on my life, but he was a, he was a gruff individual. He would roll into class. He, he was in a, he was confined to a wheelchair at this point in his life. Uh, he was, you know, fairly overweight and he was, uh, had a, had a pretty, you know, 
colorful mouth on him. And uh, he would he would roll into class. And the very first class that we had, he used a couple of choice uh, curse words and said, all right, what do you all want to talk about now? And I was just like, this was the, the very first words that he said to us in class. And he and he he went forward to talk about he basically um, had the entire class focused around the human dynamic and understanding complexity that you never know what's going to come next. Like he would, I, I remember very distinctly some of the MBAs in the class, he would ask them, what are you going to do next year? And they said, well, you know, I'm going to go get a consulting job or I'm going to go get an iBanking job. And he would go, no way, BS. And he'd, start, and he'd like really push them and challenge them in a really uncomfortable way for me sitting there. And the whole point that he was trying to drive into us is that you, you know, uh, tomorrow was promised to no one. And you don't know what's going to happen. You know, 9-11 could happen tomorrow or any, you know, a COVID global pandemic could happen tomorrow and completely change all the plans that you have. The, the thing that, that matters the most when you're managing complexity is understanding the individuals that are, that are around you the best that you can and building strong relationships of quick trust as, as best you can. And so as long as you, as an MBA student, Coming into an MBA, I would say, you know, embrace the experience, embrace the people around you, embrace the opportunities for learning. Don't let it, you know, don't let any one experience define you. Don't let any one grade or one, you know, group that you got into or, or things or school that you got into feel like it's going to define you. Just continue your path on learning and growth and surrounding yourself by great people. And that is going to, that's going to uh, kind of pave the way for the area that you are going to ultimately end up in, in your professional career. And that will be, it will be a mix of something that you're super passionate about and that you're really excited about. So continue to pursue your dreams and your passions, but it'll also be a mix of, you know, kind of the, the things that just come your way through those relationships. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.